0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph podcasts.
1: Five. It's too late to give him any advice, and would he listen? <laughs> I doubt it. Four.
2: So I disclosed that I never actually used shampoo on my hair, and it <laughs> caused caused a bit of a storm. Three.
1: Fear is the number one instrument of every despot
0: keep calm and carry on, kind of Britain. Blighty, not frighty. When did we stop being blighty, Liam?
2: One. We have off. So it's Blast Off sweet 16. Strap yourself in for another trip to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast bringing you news and views from beyond the bubble with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And what a crazy world we're leaving behind in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, if only for the duration of this podcast. Go to work, says the government. Don't gather in groups of more than six people, the same government says. Come again? Covid cases are rising, but death rates remain well down. So isn't that a good thing? Apparently not. Our little darlings are back at school, except for some. It's already home time, as lockdowns are reasserted, even though Covid poses almost no danger to kids. Alison... Help me make sense of this madness. Are you listening at the back?
0: Oh God, Liam! What, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? I mean, I mean, we think Planet Normal's a pretend place, but let's face it—we're going to have to build the <laughs> rocket, aren't we, to 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 get us to, to get us out of this place? I I'll think... just
2: email NASA. Hold on. <laughs>
0: got to proceed quite quickly this week because probably by thursday morning when you're all listening to this uh podcasts of two people including an irishman and a welshman will have become banned yeah. by the British government for of course spreading coronavirus everywhere. I mean, what can we say? Total madness. We've had eat out to help out, huge rip-roaring success with lots of people going out with their friends and family. And now we have you can't socialize with, you know, with with groups of more than six people. It's madness Liam. It's a hammer blow to the economy just as all those small businesses were picking themselves up. Out of the blue, we get this seemingly random measure. And we've got Bolton and Carfilly, which apparently the COVID rates of positive infections are picking up. So they've been slammed into these arbitrary lockdowns. But if you look at some of these new so-called cases, we've spoken about this before, haven't we, Liam? Many times. These PRC tests are very unreliable. They run. I'm not a scientist. We've established that, but they run lots of cycles to pick up anything. I mean, you know, Matt Hancock could find some coronavirus in a cheese omelette. I mean. This is where we are. And And then lock down the cheese omelette. And then lock down, not just the cheese (laughs) omelette, the entire cheese industry is going to have to be put into quarantine. At one level, it's hilarious. Finding a few remnants of virus on a swab test from people who, as we've established, um, they don't present any risk at all, uh, as we said last week. We want young people. We want young people to be getting this virus before winter so they form a human shield around the elderly. But these things we're laughing at, Liam, which seem farcical, these are huge decisions, life-changing, business-wrecking decisions. It's only the future decisions. of the British
2: economy. It's only the future <laughs> only of only the British It's only the education economy. of all those children. What we know is happening is that in both the UK and Italy, cases have been rising, but death rates remain very low and stable. The latest figures I've seen for the UK, 1,700 roughly new cases daily, but a death rate of just one in 67 million. And the ratio of deaths to cases, something I don't hear broadcast ever, the ratio of deaths to cases is nowhere near where it was at the height of the pandemic, 0.1. And also these cases that are coming to light now are largely focused on people, you know, 20 and 30 years old. The demographic that's at least risk. Now, we don't know what's really happening. The scientists don't really know what's really happening. It may be the virus has mutated to a less virulent form. As you said, and Carl Hennigan says, the Oxford professor, who has really come to the fore as a voice of common sense, these PCR tests are so sensitive, there'll be lots of false positives. They may be capturing just small parts of viral structures, not the whole virus, and only a whole virus can infect, that are now harmless, because our immune system's already dealt with them and yet on the basis of these tests we're now doing more lockdown which seems crazy just as the economy is trying to to get rolling again
0: the latest figures the last week of august figures were you were 14 times more likely to die of flu than of COVID-19. And as I said in my column this week, I've got more chance of marrying Brad Pitt than any of the readers have got of um, of dying (laughs) from COVID-19. And as you know, Liam, Brad, after after the Angelina years, that poor guy really could, you know, he could do with a bit of Welsh TLC. So let's not rule it out. Stranger things Your flame
2: flickers still still flickers for Brad Pitt.
0: Well, I... I... (laughs) Uh, I, live, I live with one of the world's great film critics and he absolutely hates that one of my favourite films is Troy, purely because it features Brad in a, in a very small loincloth, but, but moving on <laughs> swiftly. So this week we've got our kids, my son's going back to university, all we need is a few words of encouragement from the Secretary of State for Health and he said... Don't kill your gran. That's literally what he said. And if we're going to talk about killing gran, it's not even uh, a good joke. There's a lot
2: of very frightened older people. My mum and dad are quite scared listening to the tea time news every day. I don't know about you know older people in your life. It's you don't joke about these things.
0: No and I think that the don't kill your grand from you know from the same department that brought you let's empty 25,000 old people out of hospitals and send them to care homes to die I don't think I don't think Matt Hancock should be talking about that but they seem to be having this renewal of Project Fear, they wheeled out Professor Jonathan Van Tam to say that the public has relaxed too much. I mean, if you go around, Liam, and you see, you know, the empty trains, the empty buses, I've seen cyclists in Cambridge wearing masks. The public doesn't look very relaxed to me. And what I what I looked at this week in my column was I asked people on Twitter, can you come up with any examples of people in your life who are going to be permanently scared by the very deliberate tactics of the government, which we know they set about using the media to increase people's sense of personal threat. And I had the most awful, I mean, you know, terrible, mad... Examples of my mum's panic-stricken said Danny, my dad's bought a treadmill for the house so she can actually have some kind of exercise, people cancelling social gatherings because someone's third nephew might have met somebody who might have come into contact with the virus. And I think what the hell have Hancock and the Shroud Wavers on Sage done to our people?
2: I think we now have to consider the possibility that if there is another full lockdown, a lot of the population just won't wear it. Because the science, to the extent that the science exists, because it is an ongoing debate between you know people, in most cases, doing their very best to work out what's going on and honestly convey it using their expertise. But the science suggests that people in their 20s, 30s and 40s are just not at risk. So why can't they carry on? Why can't they keep the economy moving? This is what should have happened from the very beginning. Yes, there are vulnerable groups. We know elderly people are more vulnerable. We know people with existing medical conditions are more vulnerable. But to lock down the whole economy again, we're already at the point where the lockdown has caused more deaths than lives saved in terms of mental health, in terms of Businesses collapsing in terms of depression, in terms of national wealth not being channeled into the health service for new research, in terms of people not presenting at hospitals because hospitals have simply become so focused on COVID. They either are scared to present or the medics just aren't there, even though they're still being paid. And these are all themes that we've discussed on Planet Normal over the last two or three months since we got going, really, out of lockdown lockdown. And we're not scientists, we're just journalists eyeballing the data and talking to people, sometimes off the record. And I've moved more towards your position, I think. I'm now a lot more concerned, not just at the the economic and psychological damage and the lives lost because of lockdown, I'm now really concerned about the kind of national psychology of this and whether the government could actually lose its grip and its mandate, if you like, to lead people because so many of the population will be so sceptical that the government's doing the right thing if it orders another national lockdown.
0: But is it purely, I mean, it's very hard to discern a strategy. Is there actually a strategy? Are they so scared of having their mistakes revealed that they've got to kind of keep the kind of the smoke of battle? So until the smoke of battle clears, we won't be able to see all the mistakes. But Liam, you say... You know, the science is not clear. Well, that's true. There's still some, some argument. But if we look at Sweden, OK, so Sweden had the same curve, roughly the same curve of infections as we had. They had a slightly higher mortality rate than the UK. That was because they just were encouraging social distancing rather than more draconian lockdowns. But Sweden this week is uh, moving from allowing gatherings of 50 people to allowing gatherings of 500 plus. So how on earth has Sweden managed to get to that point where they're going for gatherings of over 500 people and we're now back to restricting ours to six? What, what, What could possibly have gone wrong?
2: I'm not going to defend the government here, but let's just look at some of the aspects of the UK, which means this was always going to be particularly difficult in the UK. You know, we have... In our southeastern corner, the global city of Europe, one of like two or three global cities in the world with some of the world's major airports. We are a crossroads for all comers from across planet Earth. We were always going to be an epicenter of infection for that reason. So I think there's that. I think governing our country, the UK, during this has been made a lot more difficult by broadcast media that's still very angry about the referendum result in 2016, that's still very angry about the general election result, a lot of them in 2019, they want to tear the government apart at any opportunity. Yes, critique policy. Yes, kick the shins of ministers when you think they're getting things wrong. But to tear the government apart you know, systematically to promote fear. There's a graph knocking around on the BBC just as we were recording this of the, the number of cases that have gone up. And rather than showing the whole picture right the way back to the peak in early summer, they've just cut the graph so it looks as if we're almost back to the peak. But yes. they, they've just focused in. I mean, that's that's statistically outrageous. And anybody, even you, Alison, with your D and O level maths, that is absolutely <laughs> an outrageous deeply irresponsible journalistic thing to do so I think the broadcast media has made it really hard for the government going way beyond you know the, the, the rational absolutely laudable instinct which I share with all fellow broadcasters about you know going in hard on the government when you think you've got a good case but then also we've got devolved assemblies and parliaments that again are just determined whatever the science says, to put the word not in anything that the government at Westminster says in order to show that they're self-governed and different. So you have this madness, as you say, when we've now got different regimes in terms of who can meet and who can come together in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland compared to England, which is completely mad.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, masks aren't mandatory in in shops in Wales, for example, but I I agree, Liam, I do think this 24-7 rolling news has instilled fear in people, but we still have a government whose job is not to say, don't kill your gran, whose job is actually to say, yes, we're seeing a bit of an uptick in these cases, but don't worry, cases are a fine unless people are very ill and need to go into the hospital. And so far, we're not seeing any increase in that. It's almost like they're willing this second wave
2: to to justify the the extent of the lockdown. To
0: justify the extent of the lockdown. And I cannot forgive them for that. Because as we know, there's so many people who are going to suffer from this overreaction, and they should not be... You know, it's almost like they've got so much skin in the game that they dare not pull out and say, actually, it is fine now, we just need to be very sensible. Hold our nerve. Hold our nerve. You know, the what happened to the keep calm and carry on kind of Britain? And I think that the Britain we grew up in and loved has, has, has been changed and it's been changed by deliberate psychological tactics and I think that again I don't think that's happened in other countries they've got a much more rational approach to handling Covid. Blighty not frighty. When did we stop being blighty Liam?
2: We'll come on to the government more generally in the leadership style but before we do i know amid the confusion this week alison you sought another calming voice to join us on planet normal last week we welcomed the writer and columnist stephen pollard intelligent moderate center ground politics and all round decent human being and to whom have you handed the spare planet normal spacesuit this week
0: well, this isn't the perhaps the most normal uh, inhabitant of planet normal. He's he's rather grand for us, Liam. It's uh, Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption. He's been described as brain of Britain, a former Supreme Court judge. He was an Oxford don who spends his leisure time writing highly acclaimed books on medieval history. The reason I thought we should. Bring him aboard to our planet It's because he's been one of the few members of the establishment who's spoken out against the lockdown, against the emergency legislation, which, of course, as we've talked about, has been far more expansive than any of us could have imagined. Lord Sumption's written several absolute humdinger articles. He makes me look very moderate, Liam. Does the government <laughs> have a policy for coronavirus? Indeed it does. In fact it has several policies for coronavirus, one for each month of the year, all mutually inconsistent and none of them properly thought through. I'm pretty impressed Liam that we've made it so far on Planet Normal without technical problems. There were just a few in the recording with Lord Sumption. I I hope Elliot and Louisa, our brilliant technical team, have ironed them out but you may just hear a little bit of interference.
1: I think the problem was that the government had no planning in place before the lockdown was announced. It never conducted any kind of cost-benefit analysis. It never examined the educational or economic consequences of the measures that it was proposing to take. It probably was only driven into those measures at the last moment by the now notorious statistical projections of Professor Ferguson. And the result was what we have seen. There was a period of six weeks or so when it was just about possible to justify the lockdown as being necessary to enable the NHS to catch up. Thereafter, it served no purpose whatever other than to destroy our economy and our children's chances.
0: Yes. Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, has been on the radio this week cautioning young people don't kill your gran. Now, Mr. Hancock keeps telling us about the rise in the number of cases without mentioning that there aren't many hospitalizations or deaths any longer. Do you think the government's become a prisoner of its own propaganda?
1: Well, the government, of course, is in the position that it cannot do anything which involves admitting that the lockdown was a ghastly mistake it would have been able to escape this dilemma if it had, as I think it originally intended, come out of the lockdown in late April or early May, when it was clear that the threat to the NHS's uh, intensive care capacity was over. In fact, it didn't do that. And it's now found itself trapped in a position where, first of all, it has to exaggerate the extent of the problem in order to justify its past actions. And secondly, by exaggerating the scale of the problem, it is contributing to the difficulty that it now faces in persuading people to go back to school and back to work. Because naturally what people ask is, well, what's changed since you told us that this was the most terrible thing since bubonic plague? The answer is nothing very much has changed. It just was overdone in the first place. But that's not something that it's reasonable to expect politicians to admit, not at any rate in this country. There are countries like Norway, where the government has admitted that the lockdown was a mistake, that it didn't achieve very much, and that there won't be another one. Mm. That requires courage, and I wish that that was a commodity and more plentiful supply.
0: Something I really wanted to get your expert view on, I just read a paper that was produced on the 22nd of March by SAGE. Listeners will know that's the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. And their behavioural psychologist came up with this paper called options for increasing adherence to social distancing measures. And the number two recommendation was, and I quote, use media to increase sense of personal threat. Now, Jonathan, when I read that sentence as a sort of freeborn Welsh woman, I reel back. It felt very alien to our traditions. It felt actually quite Stalinist. What do you think about this officially sanctioned brainwashing of the British people?
1: Well, the use of fear has, of course, been noticed by many people. And some members of SAGE have made public statements since then, saying that this was perhaps overdone, but it was a matter of deliberate policy, as it quite clearly was. What you have to remember is that when societies lose their liberty, it is because liberty has been crushed under the boot of some tyrant. It's usually because they've been frightened into giving it up voluntarily. And that is what has happened in this case. Fear is the number one instrument of every despot. I dare say that the intentions of this government are benign, but their methods have not been.
0: But very early on, I remember Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, saying that many people will get this and it will be a mild illness from which they'll make a full recovery. And then that tone changed, didn't it, to the point where we have had more and more shroud-waving and we have become statistically the most frightened people in Europe, certainly if not in the world, with all the knock-on effects for our work, our industries, our schools and so on. I mean, it's, it's, that's a real danger, isn't it?
1: The tone changed once the lockdown had been announced. And that, I think, was entirely predictable. If you are going to inaugurate the greatest invasion of personal liberty in our entire history, even including wartime measures, if you're going to do that, then you have to move straight into justification mode in order to justify what you've already done, and you need to frighten people into compliance. So the logic of these extreme measures was always to use fear as an instrument.
0: What do you think we have in Boris Johnson, a famous libertarian, don't we, a rather swashbuckling champion of freedom who finds himself, uh, as you say, enforcing these remarkably authoritarian and often quite contrarian measures where people aren't allowed to hug their own children at a funeral? Planet Normal had an email from a very distraught lady who said that she'd had a certain number of people were allowed at her husband's funeral and she could see her 27-year-old son a few feet away sobbing and wasn't allowed to touch him. So can you imagine Boris Johnson being the architect of of such a situation?
1: I don't know how much of a libertarian Boris Johnson is. I think that Boris Johnson is a Johnsonite Mm -hmm. and that will lead him in different directions depending on the circumstances. Boris Johnson's main problem is that he is obsessed with PR and he is not diligent enough to study a problem carefully and in depth. Those are his two main problems. I think the problem is aggravated by the fact that decisions are being made within government by a very, very small number of people and that the principal qualification for admission to his cabinet, his loyalty, as a result of which he is not getting the kind of internal discussion and criticism which makes for better decision-making.
0: I'd like to move on and talk about the legal basis for all this. So as far as I can recall, emergency legislation which gave these sweeping powers to ban gatherings and forcibly quarantine suspected coronavirus patients was passed by MPs on the 23rd of March. Now, that coronavirus bill, which will be enforced for two years, it completed all its stages in the House of Commons in one day without opposition after Downing Street offered to review it every six months. Are you, Jonathan, surprised by the lack of parliamentary scrutiny we've had throughout this lockdown? And should the bill be extended for another six months?
1: Well, the most important thing about the Coronavirus Act is that it's not the Act which has been used to justify the lockdown or other measures affecting citizens. There are no powers in the coronavirus bill to control the movements of healthy people. The government has in fact used the Coronavirus Act only to justify the financial implications of the lockdown. Most of the Act is in fact concerned with authorising with the minimum of parliamentary scrutiny, additional public expenditure. The lockdown and the quarantine rules and most of the other regulations have been made under the Public Health Control of Disease Act of 1984, which was extensively amended in 2008. Now, there is no agreement among lawyers about what I'm about to say, but I do not myself believe that that act Confers on the government the powers which it is purported to exercise, because it is a basic principle of British constitutional law that you cannot invade fundamental rights, and there are a few more fundamental rights than liberty, by using general terms. You've got to be specific about it. And the reason for that is that If you use general words to justify draconian invasions of fundamental rights, there's too big a risk that it will pass unnoticed in the course of the parliamentary process. Mm. To invade fundamental rights, you have to have absolutely specific language. The only specific language in the Public Health Act which uh, justifies invasions of liberty relates to people who are believed on reasonable grounds to be infectious. Ministers can only do things that magistrates could do. And magistrates only have power to control the movements of infected people or to control the opening of infected premises. They don't have power to control uncontaminated premises or healthy people. The government has deliberately I must assume deliberately because they have plenty of legal advice. They have used an act which, to put it at its lowest, its application is profoundly controversial. In my view, an act which doesn't confer the powers. Now, the oddity is the government does have power to do what it has done under another act, which it has declined to use, the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004. The Civil Contingencies Act is concerned with emergencies, including health-related emergencies, and it empowers ministers to do anything that could be done by an Act of Parliament. Now, you cannot get wider words than that. Why haven't they used it? Now, the only reason that I can think of for not using it is that the Civil Contingencies Act has very stringent provisions for parliamentary scrutiny. A regulation under the Act is only provisionally valid for seven days, unless it is approved by Parliament. Thereafter, it only has validity for 30 days, it has to be renewed every 30 days. Moreover, exceptionally, there are provisions entitling Parliament to amend a regulation which is laid before it, or to revoke it at any time. Now, the only reason that I can think of Why the government did not use the one piece of legislation that was plainly applicable is that it wished to avoid parliamentary scrutiny.
0: So you're saying it was a deliberate choice to go with a piece of legislation which would uh, preserve them as much as possible from parliamentary scrutiny?
1: I have to assume that because the government has plenty of highly qualified legal advice, both in-house and from external independent advisers. I find it impossible to believe that they did not look carefully at all the legislative options available to them before they took these drastic decisions. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As the Telegraph's Chief Political Correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio!
0: So... A couple of weekends ago at an anti-lockdown rally in Trafalgar Square, Piers Corbyn was arrested and given a £10,000 fixed penalty under new coronavirus laws, which restrict public gatherings of more than 30 people. Yet, of course, back in June, you know, we saw Black Lives Matter protests with several thousand people, where some officers far from arresting them took the knee to the demonstrators. What would be your reflections on the conduct of the police during lockdown?
1: Well, the police have been given the kind of powers which, in my view, no policeman should be given. £10,000 is enough to ruin most people. Mm -hmm. Fixed penalty notices were designed for relatively minor regulatory offences, parking offences, driving offences, and only the more minor driving offences. The conferring of power on any policeman in the land dish out a fixed penalty notice of £10,000 seems to me to be absolutely outrageous, even if authorised by Parliament. The fact that the government has taken powers, claimed powers, to introduce new criminal offences enforceably in that way strikes me as a matter of really serious concern. I think it is particularly serious when it is used, as it appears to have been in the case of Piers Corbyn, to suppress political protest against the government's policies. There have been a large number of much less peaceful demonstrations than those of Mr. Piers Corbyn, mm. which have not been visited with £10,000 fines. Extinction Rebellion, for example, which certainly involved groups of more than 30 people. I think that what is wrong is not so much the fact that the Extinction Rebellion did not have £10,000 fines slapped on what is wrong is that Mr Corbyn did. He is absolutely entitled to express his views, and having a £10,000 fine imposed on him for doing so in Trafalgar Square seems to me to be, in a democracy such as ours, nothing short of outrageous.
0: So over the weekend, you mentioned we saw the Extinction Rebellion protesters. They were blockading, printing plants, preventing newspapers like ours, reaching readers. Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, has talked about treating Extinction Rebellion as an organised crime group. Is that necessary or are there laws we have already on the statute books that the police should be enforcing against them?
1: Well, one of the problems is that there's a relatively recent Court of Appeal decision about protests in which... The Court of Appeal said that protesters were entitled, for example, to walk very slowly along roads in order to prevent lorries from getting to their destination. Now, personally, I think that was a very strange decision, but the courts have, I think, gone much too far in allowing people to do things by way of protest, which no ordinary citizen would be able to do in any other circumstances. At the moment... The least that you can say is that the law on protest is extremely unclear, that there are some judicial decisions which appear to say that there is a very large amount of law breaking that protesters can engage in with impunity. So at the moment, I think that we are not in a very happy position on protests. It seems to me desirable that there should be legislation defining exactly what is permitted and what is not. My own view is that protesters should be entitled in a public place to make known their views. But protesters must also accept that the rest of us have an absolute right to disagree with them or ignore them. The distinctive thing about the Extinction Rebellion protests is that the protesters do not accept that members of the public have a right to ignore them. And that, it seems to me, is the point at which their activities start verging on fascism.
0: Yes. But do you think that we're seeing in the police, as with um, Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter, a slightly sort of hold back policy because, you know, some groups are deemed to be untouchable and, and meanwhile we'll put the full force of the law against groups that we are less in sympathy with. I mean, I think that is a that's a danger.
1: Well, I think there is a problem about the discretionary enforcement of the law, which is that it selects unpopular causes and leaves popular ones beside. I think that Extinction Rebellion started out with a good deal of instinctive public either support or indifference. The way that they have behaved has lost them a good deal of public support and we may therefore see a change in enforcement policy.
0: With your other hat on, or wig on, I should say. Which is my other hat? I
1: I only have one now, I'm a citizen. (laughs)
0: With your citizen hat on, you're also a distinguished medieval historian. Before going to the bar, you are a, a don at Magdalen College. So do you think that being a historian, do you, th- do you think that's given you perspective on the present pandemic and being able to see that Covid isn't exactly the Black Death?
1: The advantage of being a historian is that historians have a ringside seat the most of the follies of mankind. Mm -hmm. And I hope that I've made full use of that advantage over the last year or two. I think that looking at it historically, people will say that COVID-19 was in historical terms a relatively minor epidemic. Cholera was much worse. Spanish flu was significantly worse tuberculosis is is still worse. It kills many, many more people annually than COVID-19 is expected to do even when it has run its course. So that historically, we have taken the most extreme measures ever used to try to contain a disease and used them against a disease which is by no means as extreme as many other things that humans have learned to live with. And that is the truth of the matter. We have to learn to live with epidemic diseases, humanity has always had to live with them. We can't just run away.
0: You wrote very memorably, a society in which the government can imprison the population without controversy is not one in which civilised people would want to live. Now, where we are at the moment is, Matt Hancock said originally that... These powers were strictly temporary, and that was almost six months ago. How temporary is it going to be? Do you you see a way out of this?
1: Well, the only way out of it is for Parliament, particularly the House of Commons, to live up to its high constitutional responsibilities and challenge governments which abuse their power. The governments enjoy emergency powers. They take powers, they use them for much longer and those powers are justified. And we've seen this countless times, and we can see it in the case of COVID-19. The Government initially uh, said that, this, that the lockdown was intended to enable the NHS to catch up. When the NHS did catch up, did they revoke the lockdown? No, they did not. I think that they were encouraged by the relatively benign reception that the public gave to the initial lockdown to try to push it a bit further. I think that they are now living with the consequences of that.
0: But when I hear Matt Hancock saying, oh, you know, if, if it's up to me, we'll hope you can have a loving uh, Christmas, you know, with your relatives, something in me absolutely bridles. I think, who are you to decide whether I have a loving Christmas or not? I rather
1: agree. Uh, on the very first occasion when the daily press conferences that have now been
0: separated, to an end <laughs> yes thank god on the very
1: first occasion when they were opened to the public the first question asked was from a lady who wished the secretary of state for health to tell her whether she was allowed to hug her grandchildren mm. i think it's mm-hmm. a society in which you have to ask a minister of the Crown whether it's okay to hug your grandchildren is a society where something has gone very very seriously wrong
0: Please God, t- tell me, tell me, it's all going to be over by the spring. When, when, when do you say? When, when, when do they let us out, Jonathan? Tell, tell me.
1: I have the slightest idea. <laughs> if, it depe- if it depended on any rational considerations, they would have te- let us out long ago. But because it doesn't, it's very hard to predict.
0: So you have a minute on the phone with the prime minister. What is your advice?
1: It's too late to give him any advice, and would he listen? <laughs> I doubt it.
2: Wow. That from a former Supreme Court judge. He's analytical, he's wide-ranging, and plenty of mischief, my lord, in there as well. Boris Johnson apparently isn't diligent enough to study a brief in detail, Alison.
0: Yeah, crikey. It was a... quietly damning wasn't it I did have a moment about halfway through Liam when I thought his fees are so great we're probably being charged 800 quid a word aren't we by Lord Summership poor old planet Normal's going to be bankrupt <laughs> you know what I really valued about talking to him I mean I know a lot of it's quite dense but he really knows his stuff so I think a lot of people like me assume that this coronavirus act which is coming up for a renewal on the 23rd of September I thought right MPs will be able to challenge this now push back on some of the measures which we now think are excessive. But what Lord Sumption was explaining to us is in fact the government's basis for many of these measures isn't the Coronavirus Act at all. They've chosen another piece of legislation which preserves them from parliamentary scrutiny. And I I think that's quite sinister. What did you think?
2: I do. I think that's what we call in our trade a scoop of analysis. It's something that was known but hasn't been sort of widely processed. And I think the fact he said that here on planet normal will lead to headlines and, and other journalists and politicians really scrutinising that. I thought also really interesting were just his you know statements of opinion given that he is a former Supreme Court judge. He's not a bloke with a sort of tinfoil hat on his head in a bed set mm, mm. and a laptop keyboard <laughs> warrior. You That's know, for, you. for him, <laughs> for him, for him to say uh, that the government has, albeit for benign reasons, used fear to control the population. I mean, that's, a, that's a, a devastating thing for him to say. For him to say the law on protest is very unclear and the activities of Extinction Rebellion are, quotes, verging on fascism. I think that's a headline. We should be clear, he has got previous with Boris Johnson, he has got previous with this government, he was vehemently opposed to Brexit. It wouldn't be fair to not say that, we should say that, but he is still, you know, an honest-to-goodness Supreme Court judge and he doesn't he doesn't say stuff... Just for effect.
0: And the stuff about Piers Corbyn and this, you know, astonishing fixed penalty of ten thousand pounds, as he said, that would that would ruin most normal people in the country, wouldn't it? And he said no police should be given those powers. I mean, he actually came, came out and said it. And I and I, and I think that, that that's something we've seen with growing alarm. A, a line I really like, Liam, which I think applies to so many things we talk about on Planet Normal to the BBC, to the establishment. He says that the police select unpopular causes and leave popular ones aside. Now, isn't that damning?
2: I literally choked on my tea while I was listening to that. <laughs> the police have imposed this fine on Piers Corbyn, the, the brother of the former leader of the opposition, of course, who has been involved with some pretty marginal causes. And perhaps what Sumption is saying is that the police see Corbyn and, and David Icke and others who were protesting in Trafalgar Square that day as an easy target. You know, I don't agree with them, but they should be allowed to protest in Trafalgar Square, particularly if Extinction Rebellion are allowed to protest and doing criminal damage at the same time. And if particularly if Black Lives Matter... Are allowed to protest, and again, doing criminal damage at the same time. Uh, which Corbyn and his fellow protesters—they didn't do any criminal damage at all. It was a peaceful demonstration, as far as I could see. So the idea that the police are coming in harder on protesters that they think are espousing less popular causes or causes that aren't as right on or as down with the kids—I mean, that is a really dangerous uh, uh, routes if indeed that is the route that the police are taking?
0: Well, we saw this a while ago. I mean, you know, I live in Cambridge and the local authority plus the Cambridgeshire Police Force, facilitated an Extinction Rebellion protest, which closed off quite a large section of the town for quite a long time. And then it culminated, and it, it, it so emboldened the Extinction Rebellion protesters that you may remember, Leanne. They started they digging and up the lawn, didn't they? Digging up the lawn, doing criminal damage outside Trinity College while everyone stood by. And I think it's about the creeping political correctness in the police, which is Lord Sumption, you know, points the finger at, it's like they won't police the, um, you know, so-called popular causes, not popular with people like us or people on Planet Normal, of course, but popular in the sense of liberal leftist causes, which they're happy to take a knee to. But then when it's actually people like Piers Corbyn, who are anti-lockdown, as, as, I, as I increasingly am, then it's legitimate to slap a 10 grand fine on him when he didn't, uh, as far as we know, he didn't throw a bicycle at a police horse, did he, for example?
2: Pearson backs Corbyn shock. I <laughs> <No, yeah. laughs> yeah, this this know.
0: Now, yeah, this is the relatively sane Corbyn, I think.
2: <laughs> That's saying something. So this has also been a week, Alison, of course, that the tortured Brexit negotiations have cranked back up. Boris Johnson has announced if there's no free trade agreement by mid-October, the UK will stop negotiating with the EU and we'll leave in January when the transition period ends with no trade deal. Meanwhile, the government seems to have got itself into another legal nest of vipers. Are you happy Brexit's back?
0: Well, you know, I, I thought we'd never again hear those dread words from he, uh, Hugh Edwards, over to catch your Adler in Brussels. I mean, oh, God. It goes back down the, sort of the wormhole of nightmares, doesn't it, into all that thrashing around. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to make a confession now. No, I, I know. The I, you know, I, I hear the I hear the words Irish backstop. I think you know you Halligan. Irish are my is okay. Irish Come on, Irish
2: is okay. Yep. Irish is you know, whiskey, and I- good Irish music, is okay. but and economy how,
0: how many people in the country ever understood what the Irish backstop was? So basically, now, as far as I can work out, we've had Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland minister in the Commons, basically explaining that there was going to be um, I don't know what the technical term is, but a tiny amount of jiggery pokery. With the withdrawal agreement, which we seem to have signed under some duress anyway, and I, as far you're going to explain it to me much better, but is, is it the idea that these little changes in the Internal Market Bill will limit the role of the EU in Northern Ireland if we don't reach a trade agreement with them, as looks increasingly likely?
2: Yeah, the, the danger is, from the government's point of view, that the EU will insist on tariffs being imposed on exports from GB, the mainland, to Northern Ireland, even though Northern Ireland's part of the UK, which the government is then saying is a complete abrogation of the UK's sovereignty, and I'd have to uh, agree with them. Look, there was always going to be a legal tussle here as Brexit entered the end game. The EU wants to make this as difficult as possible for the UK, you know, in order to... Decourage les autres, you know, so it looks very tough. So nobody else wants to try and leave the European Union because, of course, uh, there are countries around the European Union where the polls looking for a referendum to exit support for for that is rising. There are already articles in the Northern Ireland Protocol that give the UK protections against the EU behaving in an unreasonable manner. The government could have invoked them. It seems maybe they want another kind of legal fight, like they uh, provoked, uh, rightly in my view, a legal fight with the, the Houses of Parliament so the whole country could see that it was remain voting parliamentarians who wanted us to stay within the European Union. This was always going to be a legal tussle, but I think the government might have cranked up the fireworks a bit too much. So ordinary people, just eyeballing the newspaper headlines, will think that the government's behaved incredibly unreasonably. Even though, on the fine points of the legal arguments, the government really does have a point here.
0: You, I saw you were on Sky News earlier, explaining this to the populace and moonlighting, um, getting getting some um, getting some comments about the uh, your remarkable hairdo, weren't you?
2: What did they say? Some bloke on Twitter said, uh, "Magnificent coiffure, Mr. Halligan." <laughs> so I disclosed. I mean, you know, this is the key. This is the key moment in the national debate, of course, to disclose um, that I never actually use shampoo on my hair, and it caused caused a bit of a storm. <laughs> I don't. I just use hot water. I just think it's better.
0: Going back to Hot Water, you wrote a fantastic piece in the Sunday Telegraph talking about the government needing to get some visionary ideas to you know, pull us out of the mud. You compared it to 1945, the Labour government and the New Jerusalem, and you said that Boris and uh, Rishi are going to have to decide whether they're wet or dry. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, they are. That's the the vernacular of, of 1980s conservatism, isn't it, uh, Alison, that, that we watch develop as as students and then young journalists. The the wets were people who always took the easy decisions and and maybe, you know, pushed all the, the difficulties into the long grass and never really faced up to their opponents, never really took on vested interests. And Ted Heath, I guess, was was presented by a lot of the people in the Cabinet during the 80s as the godfather of the, of the wets. The dries were a lot more analytical, a lot more willing to take difficult decisions on tax and spend, a lot more willing to deregulate the economy and make it more business-friendly, uh, and to go for growth in order to deal with debt rather than, if you like, raise taxes. And we will see over the next few months what kind of Conservative Boris is. There's talk that the government may even cancel the budget in mm. November, which I think would be a disaster. In my column, I liked it to a big, you know, PLC, a big listed company refusing to do an audit or delaying an audit, which makes the market think, well, what do you got to hide, guys? Can you actually face tough decisions? I think a big problem is that Downing Street, Boris has got around him an awful lot of campaigners, as I said earlier, but not enough policy people. And I think it's going to stay that way until Brexit gets done. I think the cabinet is going to stay full of yes people until Brexit gets done. Hopefully, once we are over that legal chasm, once things calm down politically between us and the EU, we'll then be in a much better position, I think, to negotiate a trade deal if we haven't got one up until that point. And hopefully, I think he'll bring it to the cabinet, as David Davis was saying on Planet Normal a few weeks ago, mm. A lot more talent from the backbenches, some greybeards. You know, we disagreed with Jeremy Hunt on, on Brexit, didn't we, you and I? But he's a very clever guy with an awful lot of business experience. You know, Damien Green, again, not necessarily your kind of conservative backbencher, but quite an experienced guy. He is going to need to get more people with experience in the Cabinet who will stand up to him. Because as Jonathan Sumption says, he needs people around him who don't just say yes.
0: You talked about us having this stonking budget deficit of three hundred and twenty billion. Do you think that they're hoping to kind of fold in the sort of COVID financial fallout and the Brexit thing together so that it, you know, so that so that neither will look so bad? And you're you quite optimistic, aren't you, about us leaving without a, a free trade well, deal I don't, anyway, aren't you?
2: I don't think leaving with a deal is the, you know, disaster and pestilence that A lot of people that frankly don't want to leave the European Union keep saying that it is. And that's exactly what Mervyn King said to us, didn't he? Again, on Mm. on Planet Normal Mm. during the summer. Unless you're prepared to leave without a deal, you're always going to get a really terrible deal. That's one thing. And if you're not prepared to leave without a deal and prepare to have no free trade agreement, then the EU's always going to be able to dictate the terms. Leaving without a free trade agreement means we trade on what's called World Trade Organization terms. They're the basic rules that govern global trade between civilized consenting countries. We trade with the US on WTO terms. That's our biggest single country trading partner. The US trades with the EU on WTO terms, uh, as does China trade with the EU on WTO terms. Both those countries, the global economic superpowers, export to the EU hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods and services on WTO terms this is not a disaster at all and I've said for a long time that actually the EU will never give us a decent deal I think that's playing out now I still think the chances are we won't get a free trade agreement because the EU simply doesn't want to give us one they want it to look as difficult as possible and once we've out, but without a free trade agreement, that's then a good time when the political temperature's dropped to then ne- negotiate that all-important free trade agreement.
0: But they've been, well, we know they have a track record of this, but they've been real kind of slyly toves about this. Because I remember, Liam, that they were always saying, oh, yes, you can have a Canada-style agreement, didn't they? They, they did. always said that. They did. And Michelle- then suddenly it's like... Oh, no, you can't even have that now. I mean, you know, anyone who's done sort of negotiating with small children will recognise the <laughs> tactics here. You know, I, I told you you could have a flump before bedtime, but I was lying and you're not allowed to have anything. You can have a glass of water. I mean, this is literally, you know, I'm a bit worried. I'm going to be honest, you know, as a mum and my children's teachers, I'm a bit worried The coming out of the Covid disaster Plus Brexit, I know you say WTO terms are fine, but you know it's going to be an interesting white water rafting experience, isn't it? But I'm so fed up of them. You know the absolute dishonesty, the double dealing. Of course, you can have one of these. Oh no, you can't. Suddenly, they really want to rub our noses in it. That's always what it's all been about, isn't it? Is making it as unpleasant as possible. So bring it on.
2: Unfortunately, I I do think that's the case, and that goes against the European Union's own article of association which are that they have to act in a neighbourly way to those countries those third countries which is what will be around them
0: so let's have some reader emails lots and lots of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk just we had some really terrific correspondence this is a great one here to the point Liam you like this from James Robbins I no longer give a rat's bottom. That's about that's the lockdown.
2: <laughs> that isn't actually the phrase, is it? It's a rat's word that begins with a, but rat's bottom's even better. Yeah. I like that.
0: I was brought up in the chapel. I don't I don't say rude words. <laughs> we know what you mean. <laughs> So James says, my 14-year-old son, who almost died from flu, asked yesterday, what was the point of testing for COVID when we don't test for flu, which kills hundreds of thousands every year? How many are getting flu every day? How many are dying? What about every other known virus? Get a grip. Grow up. COVID is going nowhere. Live with it. Protect the vulnerable over 75s. So if you're sick, stay home. If sicker, go to the hospital. Thank you, James.
2: <laughs> James for PM, that's what I say. James for PM, Absolutely. <laughs> Here's an absolute gem of an email from Jane complaining about the BBC. I do love this. I agree with everything Alison said about the implausible conversations we hear now from characters in The Archers. I'm extremely irked that they've quietly dropped all mention of the hunt and now that Will Grundy's no longer a gamekeeper, presumably the shoot is also going to be quietly forgotten about. Best wishes, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) That's Planet Normal right there. Absolutely
0: brilliant. Well, I told you, didn't I? I told you that the Archers is basically sort of Islington moved to the East Midlands. I mean, it's absolutely implausible. This is a brilliant, a lovely observation. Someone sent this to us, something they'd seen on BBC News World. Man blows up part of his house in France while trying to swat a fly, which they, which somebody uh, compared rather brilliantly to the government's lockdown policy. And there's a lovely one actually from Helen Andrews, Liam. No one I know has been ill with Covid and no one I know knows anyone who has been ill with a 2020 plague. However, I do know lots of people whose jobs, businesses, livelihoods and futures are being destroyed by the hysterical overreaction and are suffering badly with stress and anxiety. Likewise, people waiting for important medical appointments. The disastrous impact on the nation's health hasn't even started yet. High time for some common sense. Well said, Helen.
2: So that's it. Voyage number 16 to Planet Normal is now completed. As you exit this sanity rocket, put your mask back on and when sliding down the emergency exit, take off your high-heeled shoes.
0: Do remember that every Thursday at 11am, after the release of each new Planet Normal podcast, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow residents of Planet Normal, yes, that's you listeners, via the Telegraph website. We'd love to talk to you. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. Between 11 and 12 on Thursday, we'll reply to them and you can come and hurl compliments or insults at us and it could be a lot of fun and it may help to lower your blood pressure.
2: (laughs) Or raise it even. (laughs) Or raise it. You can email us with your thoughts on today's show or on anything else at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please tell others about the show, anyone who might want to hear news and views from beyond the bubble.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and maybe even a short review on Apple Podcasts. You're a beacon of light in an otherwise dismal world, writes Phil in his review of Planet Normal. God bless you, Phil.
2: Your podcast is the only place I hear common sense, writes Archie. Each episode reminds me there are others who feel as I do. Keep up the good work. Any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where are the good ones? Check out the very useful article... Explaining all things podcast on the Telegraph website, you'll find the link in the show notes to this episode. Thanks as ever, as Planet Normal fades away, and Earth hose interview to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt, our editor Theo Leludis, live long and prosper, as Spock said to Captain Kirk. And until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Fellow citizens of Planet Normal, it's Liam again. Since we launched back in May, this podcast has proved quite popular. There's a market for sane, down to earth discussion of our crazy world. Who knew? So the Telegraph has asked me and co pilot Pearson to jointly write a weekly Planet Normal column. The first will appear in the paper and online on Monday, the 14th of September, and every Monday from then on. Featuring lots of listener emails and a look forward to the week ahead. The Planet Normal column will be similar in tone to this podcast and similarly sane. So listen to us, write to us, then read what we have to say, each and every Monday. Planet Normal.